Hello there, and welcome back. I've got Dr. Larissa Strath on for her second appearance. And as promised, we get a chance to talk a little bit about how some of the, uh, the ideas that we discussed in her education earlier on um, can be applied directly to your diet and your behavior and ultimately to your health. We start off a little bit with everybody's favorite and do a little bit of background, but if you stick around toward the second half of the episode, you can hear about some foods that specifically can be incorporated into your diet, and at the very end, a a phenomenal resource, I can't underscore this enough, um, that she is a part of uh, that's free, and you can get even more information and even classes if you want, uh, but we'll include that at the end of the show, you gotta stick around for it. So without further ado, let's get to it. Welcome to The Price of Pain, brought to you by the Pain Research and Intervention Center of Excellence at the University of Florida. Let's join host Dr. Joshua Crow in conversations with scientists, healthcare providers, and industry professionals as we delve into the highly subjective experience of pain and the ongoing effort to reveal its influence on our everyday lives. Uh, in all seriousness, we got, a, we got a chance to talk a lot about your dissertation didn't yes. talk about what led up to that and one of the the favorite things that our listeners do give feedback on mm-hmm. uh, is that for whatever reason they think that our guests are the most interesting people ever and love to hear about wow. where they came from and how they got to where they are and in this case the they is you so I hope I live up to their expectations. Yeah. <laughs> so you, you gave a little bit about, about UAB, but you know I, I have the advantage of, of knowing you, so I don't want to mm-hmm. make any assumptions that, oh, yeah, that's a given. Mm-hmm. Um, so what, what was the first moment that, not even necessarily pain research or even diet, what was the first moment that you thought, like, hey, I've got an idea, I'm going to college, and I want to study? Was it? Was it? Blank. Yeah. It was, was not. It? Well... Okay. Well, I would say growing up, my dad was a high school science teacher. Um, my mom also taught high school, but she taught business and law. And unfortunately, none of her kids went into business or law. So um, <laughs> they both went into like science, social science. Right. <laughs> but my dad, he was a high, like high school physics, chem, bio teacher. So he was always bringing cow eyeballs back like I have memories of doing that in the garage and like pulling them apart and dissecting them and Ah. getting a microscope and you know finding dead bugs and pulling them apart and looking under the microscope so that's okay (laughs) that was my childhood also risk factors for you know sociopathic behavior but okay and like dissecting fish so what um did you say what what age level he was a science teacher for was he high High school school. okay high school yeah so he taught yeah high school physics chem for a little bit and then mainly physics and biology. Cool. Um, okay. But just that was probably from a young age, just loved science. Loved it, loved it, loved it. That was always my favorite subject. It was I was good at it, and I liked it. So I was like, I'm going to go, and I'm going to be um, something related to science and healthcare. And at first I thought I wanted to be a physical therapist because I really liked sports. I played all kinds of sports growing up to the point where I had to, like, pick were you like, were you a tomboy? Yes. <laughs> pulling bugs apart. You pull bugs apart. Cutting fish on the sport. dock. Yep. Playing lots of sports. Yes. Got it. Um, and so what I had to, I had to pick. Um, and that's actually part of how I ended up getting here. Because if I'd gone a different direction, I wouldn't be here. Um, so it was between soccer and figure skating. I was getting really competitive 
I know contrast. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. I have to. I'm gonna. I'm gonna interject here, and I yeah. don't want to derail this story because yeah. I'm. I'm bought in. Yeah. But nobody can say the words figure skating without me thinking of this movie called The Cutting Edge. Oh yeah. DB Sweeney yep. and uh, Myra Kelly. Right. Yep. This is early '90s. I remember mm-hmm. it's one of my first like movie dates mm-hmm. as a as a middle schooler. I'm outing myself on All my right. age here. Um, but just really quick. So it's a, a hockey. He's a Canadian hockey player, right? Mm-hmm. And and. Uh, his career has like his career ending injury to his eye. Yep. And so he gets an offer to go figure skating, like as a figure skating couple's partner, yep. right? Partner thing. But all of his family and all the guys at his brother's bar think that he's going off to join the Merchant Marine, right? Mm-hmm. And he comes home and uh, and he's like, oh, yeah, there's my brother and blah, blah, blah. And all the, you know, the townsfolk, this is, you know, stereotypical country Canada, right? Mm-hmm. And, and they're at the bar and there's like the, you know, the Labatt's. You know, yep. neon sign and, <laughs> and all these things, right? And uh, and uh, so he has to tell his brother, he's like, yeah, I didn't go to join the Merchant Marine. You know, and he's like, well, what have you been doing? He's like, well, I've been doing a little figure skating. And you hear some guy in the back go, did he say finger painting? <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I, I didn't mean it to laugh at your story. soccer and finger yeah, painting. finger painting, soccer and finger painting. Yeah, and so, I'm Canadian, so it's like, yeah, you know, tough it's call, just, right? You no, know, it was, I, I see where your brain went. Yeah, yeah. So, no. okay. But yeah, so <laughs> I should start with that. I'm from the Toronto area. Nice. <laughs> 40 minutes north of Toronto, a place called Barrie. But while I was in Barrie, I had to pick between finger painting and soccer, figure skating. Uh, it was just getting super competitive. And I ended up picking soccer, which was probably the best decision, <laughs> um, yeah. given that now we're sitting here. Um, because, you know, I had wonderful coach, wonderful experiences, and ended up getting a soccer scholarship to come to the States. So not only were you a soccer player, you were a good soccer player. I was good enough to, to get paid to play and yeah. to get my education. I think that's a pretty good line of delineation <laughs> there, right? Um, and it was interesting because I, at, like at the time when I was kind of picking, I kind of had these two offers that were standing out and it was Central Michigan. Mm. And the Chippewas. The Chippewas. And then yeah. the um, uh, Faulkner University in Montgomery smaller liberal arts college um and i ended up tearing my acl and i called you know both coaches and i said this is what's up i'm you know only in grade 11 so i still have a year to recover mm-hmm. blah 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 and i remember the coach being like mm, you're probably gonna ride the bench because we don't know like how you're gonna be and you um, said this the coach was a central coach? Michi- okay. this is at okay. central michigan was like we don't know how you're gonna be blah 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 and i was just like well that's kind of disheartening i called the other coach and he was like no, fine. You're just gonna have to work hard, and we'll see how we'll see how it goes. And so I was, you know, more drawn to that school, and then I was also drawn to the fact that Alabama was going to be a very different life style mm. and just life experience than if I were to just go a couple hours, you know, south from my home. Michigan is, <laughs> the, the, I may be biased, but Michigan is the geographic center of the universe. Oh, yeah. So you could do much worse. Yeah, exactly. But, yeah, so I went all the way to Alabama. My mom said that she cried dropping me off and, you know, leaving me. She's like, where am I leaving my child? So I was in Montgomery, Alabama, and that is where I did my, my undergrad. So I played soccer for four years, loved it, absolutely loved it. It was a ton of work being a student athlete. Um, but it taught me a lot about, you know, work-life balance and how to be efficient with your time and, and everything. We, 
you know, made it um, to the national tournament. Like it was, it was a lot of fun. What, divi- what division? <laughs> so it was NAIA. Okay, Division perfect. one. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so it was, it was just, it was so much fun. I still, you know, still in touch with a lot of my teammates today. What were you studying while you did this? So I started as pre-physical therapy because that's what I thought I wanted to do because I'd spent a lot of time in rehab with my own knee. I was mm-hmm. an athlete and I was like, I'd love to work with athletes. And then I started taking my courses and there's just so much biology. And then I realized that I didn't like biology as much as I like <laughs> chemistry. <laughs> and that's not a lot of people say that because I think I'm more interested in the, the why rather than the what. So instead of what's happening, I want to know why that thing is happening. Mm. Why is this working the way it's supposed to be working? Um, so I ended up switching majors because I was like, well, maybe I should go to med school. Um, so I ended up going pre-med. And at the time, um, you know, I was really interested in chemistry. They didn't have a biochemistry track, any chemistry degrees because it was a small college. Um, so I just minored in chemistry. So I was pre-med with a minor in, in chemistry. Did all those courses, loved biochemistry, like mm-hmm. fell in love with biochemistry. You and don't hear that very often. <laughs> I love it. Don't hear that I am such often. a nerd for biochemistry. <laughs> it was, I loved that class. Um, and was interesting because we had to take this research capstone class and you had to do a research project and I remember doing research with mice this at the time I thought I was going to med school Mm -hmm. and I remember saying I don't know why anyone would want to do this every day I hate these mice I don't (laughs) want to do research why would anybody want to do this and I remember saying that to my mom I was like mom oh I just I don't like this and so I go and I was it the mice what was, I don't what was know it what it was, and I just at the time I hated it, and okay. I think I think what it was is I, because it's a small college, you're you're working with what you've got, right? Um, which they went out of their way to help me for sure, but I mean it's not the same as if you were at like a big, mm-hmm. research heavy institution, mm-hmm. so you're kind of like putting things together yeah. as you go, and I you know made this project of like I'm interested in diet just for my own reasons because um, right before I graduated high school, I was diagnosed with celiac disease, which for people who don't know is an autoimmune disorder where if you eat gluten, your body starts to attack itself. (laughs) Um, So kind of cut that out. Um, And so I was just always interested in the way that diet affects health Mm -hmm. just because it made such a big difference for me in my, my course of life. So I was like, I want to do see cranberries and kale versus like your typical antibiotic um, on UTIs in mm-hmm. mice and just see, you know, what happens in terms of white blood cell count. So this was probably my first um, time that I really had to use my resources. So um, and be collaborative because, again, small institution, mm-hmm. we don't have all the machinery and all that stuff. And there is a a guy that came in from Tuskegee to do a presentation and he was like, yeah, we've got flow cytometers and all this stuff. And I was like, so I went up to him and I was like, Hey, long shot question. But if I bought, like if I used my little, my little research budget and bought the reagents and like brought the samples, could you run some flow cytometry on the urine and the blood for me? And he was like, sure. If you can get the samples here, blah, blah, blah. So I, (laughs) So, um, uh, you know, 
packed up my little urine samples. I was able to like spin down all the blood samples and, you know, drove really fast up the highway. It's about 30, 35 minutes from Montgomery. What kind of window do you have? Like trying to as fast as possible because they're frozen. Right, right. (laughs) Okay. Um, And so, and he was able to do all the flow cytometry. He taught me how to do it. Taught me how to read it. Um, it was, he was super kind. He didn't charge me for his time or anything like that. Um, and, you know, basically saw that this heavy duty cranberries and kale supplementation was just as good as this antibiotic in the mice. Really? And that was my project. <laughs> so what, when you say just as good, what were your outcome measures for the UTI? Was it, was it a threshold as far as the white blood cell oh, okay. just count. the white blood cell count. Um, and then temperature body temperature okay. um and then just some behavioral things oh. that i thought like again i didn't a- have much training but <laughs> any pain testing of any kind with those not, mice yet that came, not with that, that so later. that came okay. later so and i remember we had to go present um our findings at the alabama academy of arts and sciences conference and i remember driving up and I was so over my research project at this point. And I was on the phone with my mom and I went, I'm never doing this again. Why? <laughs> I don't, I'm now I'm off to like some nerd convention where I have to prevent, present my science and blah, blah, blah. And get there. And, you know, I'm presenting my poster and this man walks up and he's asking me all these questions. And he goes, so what are your plans after, um, you know, you finish college? This is in like February. Um, of my senior year. Oh, okay. I was planning on taking a gap year, mm-hmm. writing the MCAT, mm-hmm. going to med school. PhD, not on my radar at all. Like I said, I really was not happy with my place. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I to- so I told him, I was like, well, yeah, I'm going, going to go home and, you know, write the MCAT and maybe go to med school. He was like, oh, where's home? And I said, oh, it's in Canada. He goes, well, where in Canada? It's like the Toronto area. He goes, well, where? I'm from Hamilton. <laughs> I'm from Barrie. And so that's about how, two how hours, okay. two hours, like one hour on each side of, of Toronto. And so he's like, and so spoiler alert, this guy ended up being my PhD mentor. Very cool. <laughs> um, so he um, was like, well, we'll be in touch. We'll be in touch. And, you know, in that excitement of, you know, well, there's a Canadian in Alabama. Wow. Um, forgot to exchange contact information. So he ended up reaching out to my undergrad professor and she loved Dr. Fungaday. She, you know, again, probably one of the reasons I'm here. Mm-hmm. Um, but she is, she's tough. Like she is a tough cookie. And I did, was like, I do not want to ever be on her bad side. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, I'm a senior. I've, you know, I've stayed on her good side and I get this text from her and she's like, you need to come to my office right now. And I'm just like, oh, my gosh, what have I done? She didn't text your middle name, did she? No. Oh, okay. She so just said, you need to come to my office. And I was like, that's how you know when you're oh really in God. trouble. And so I come, and she's like, well, I just heard from Rob Sorge. Do you remember him? And I went, yeah. He goes, they talked to the VN program director, and because, like, interviews were over for this incoming class, and they are like, they have enough money for one more person. And Rob said that if you want to come, you can come in – July. And I went, well, I think I'd be an idiot to like pass this one up. (laughs) Um, And so I told my mom, I was like, I think I'm going to UAB. (laughs) And she was like, I mean, it sounds like a great plan. And I was like, but I'm just worried because again, he's a basic science guy. Um, It's mice. 
uh, I, I'm just not too sure. So I went up and, you know, talked to him and interviewed with a couple people. And he was telling me, he's like, no, I'm trying to get into, like, the clinical space as well and trying to get more translational. So you'd be working on clinical projects mainly. Perfect. You'd be doing a little bit of my stuff, but mainly clinical stuff. And so that convinced me. I was like, I'm trusting you because you're Canadian. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I'm going to interject Trust another you. story. This Go one's a little more it. personal. We're not going to talk about finger painting on this one. Okay. This explains a lot of, oh. of, of this phenomena here. <laughs> when I started, I believe it was when I started my master's program. I'll leave this, uh, this professor unnamed Okay. because, you know, who knows who will listen to this and mm-hmm. I you know, don't want to sell his name. But I'm originally from Michigan, as I hinted right. at earlier. And it's not that I feel out of place down here, but it's, you know, worlds apart, right? Mm-hmm. And so when I meet Canadians, it's a little bit more home, yep. right? Northerners, you mm-hmm. know, other hardy people. Yeah, we're hardy. Yeah, hardy people. <laughs> um, and so I was excited talking to this guy. We're, you know, we're, we're getting together and yep. play this Frisbee group, right? Mm-hmm. This is all the clues I'm going to give. And I said, oh, yeah, you know, I met some other people I think might might come and play. And I said, you know, so-and-so. And I was like, oh, and, and uh, you know, this one, he's a Canadian, he just kind of shakes his head. And I went, well, you don't, you don't like Canadians? <laughs> and uh, and he said, and I quote, man, Canadians are like fleas. There's never just one of them. Nope. <laughs> <We> <laughs> now I know why. <laughs> we find each other. That's right. There was a whole Facebook group I was a part of, and it was called Canadians in Alabama. Oh, wow. Yeah. It was, yeah, yeah we. Yeah. That's a great band name for the record. Type. Canadians in yes. Alabama. Yes. Anyway, so I did end up going. Um fell in love he did you know pain and diet mm-hmm. stuff and I was that was mainly what drew me in I had again no interest in a PhD I had no particular interest in pain at the time at this diet. at this point though with with pain and diet what kind of give us a pulse read on that what because a lot of people mm-hmm. are probably we have a, a bit of a mixed audience where some right. people are very familiar with the research and some people are learning this for the first time. Right. And so how at that point did, at least with, and this was with Sorge? Yes. How did his his research, how did pain and diet intersect there? What was he most interested in? Was it just inflammatory stuff? or? Yeah, so uh, he was mainly interested in how diet can affect the immune system, which can then go on to influence pain. Mm. Um, because as you've probably spoken to other people on this podcast, is, you know, pain is not just a neurological phenomenon, the immune system is heavily involved. Um, so looking at a lot of, you know, inflammation, um, white blood, different types of white blood cells. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was one of the people, him and uh, his postdoc uh, mentor, Jeff Mogul, that, you know, kind of parsed out the fact that um, males and females, because of their kind of dimorphic immune systems, basically are processing pain differently Mm -hmm. and that's why a lot of the drugs that we you know design and test on male mice don't go on to work for females yeah right um (laughs) somebody if if somebody had only anticipated (sighs) that we may actually be just a little bit different i know yeah okay men are from what is it men are from mars women are from venus that's what they say yeah Um, except yeah except for me i'm just from michigan yeah yeah i'm from you know Canada. <laughs> it's its own little place. So, um, so at this point, you you said you're you're more interested in diet, and, and this is the first time that pain mm-hmm. kind of blipped on your radar. Yeah. Did you instantly have an idea of of how you wanted to apply your interest to that, or 
or at that point was it really well okay I'm gonna follow your lead in yeah so I followed his lead because this is the other funny part is that neuro and like neuroscience was my worst anatomy course <laughs> and here I am in this neuroscience PhD program best place to learn right and I was just like I like food (laughs) I like eating it I like learning about it and so I was kind of just following his lead but then he one great thing about Rob is he will sit and listen to your ideas Mm -hmm. um and so I remember you know taking a nutrition one of my um electives I took a nutrition course it was nutritional biochemistry because I loved it it was a six credit hour course in the summer it was wow a lot of information but I loved it I loved it um, and I remember like screaming into his office one day, I'm like, we need to look at oxidative stress and carbs. <laughs> and he was like, why? And so I just sat down and I explained to him, I was like, because oxidative stress can, you know, promote inflammation. It can cause neuropathy. It can like do all this stuff. Ugh. I just like laid it all out there. And he just said, okay, we're going to do that. Um, and that actually led to my first, first author publication with him, Very cool. which was the, when we looked at, cause we were, at the time, we were working on the clinical um, trial of, you know, doing an intervention with a low-carb versus low-fat diet mm-hmm. um, versus control to see what would what would help. And we knew that the low-carb diet was helping because we could see that in the stats over a period of 12 weeks in terms of pain. But we didn't know why because the inflammatory markers weren't telling the story, um, mm-hmm. which was interesting. They really didn't change over time. But so we couldn't really figure out, like, what was going on. And so I was like, we need to take the blood and we need a test for oxidative stress. And as it turned out, that appeared to be the driver. So as their oxidative stress went down because the amount of carbohydrates went down to be oxidized, their pain decreased. Now, this is a point where I usually interject (laughs) because there are some terms that people may not be familiar with. Mm -hmm. And we've covered in in other episodes uh, the concept of inflammatory markers, mm-hmm. um, but just just give a, a brief Cliff's Notes explanation of of you don't have to run through mm-hmm. the gamut of, of all the interleukins and everything, yep. but um, you know just some of the things that you were looking for and, mm-hmm. and and what role they play in the inflammatory cascade, if you can, mm-hmm. uh, so yep. people understand. And then oxidative stress, because oxidative stress is a term that that some people it may have never even heard yes. and others have heard and they don't know what it is because they don't get down to the basic science. Right. So, and I, an oxidative stress let's remediate. Is, is my biochemistry baby. That's so right. I okay. love oxidative okay. stress. So, so you're uniquely qualified to explain yes. this to our <laughs> highly intelligent, interested, yet perhaps uninformed audience. Exactly. Okay. So, um, so basically for, in terms of inflammation, we're looking at inflammatory biomarkers, kind of looking at two different classes of them one group being Mm pro-inflammatory, so um, more associated with pain, um, more associated with an active, you know, immune response. Um, So these are are things that that cause inflammation as part of a repair process, supposed to be part of a repair process. Exactly, and that's that's the thing, I mean, especially when you get into the media, people freak you out about inflammation. And I mean, it's a completely normal, healthy bodily response complete you would be dead without it so don't be afraid of it um right right. (laughs) um but we just don't want it to be chronic that's the thing and much of the uh and if i can fill in the blanks here because we do intersect a little bit in in our expertise here but um most of the signaling 
that your body sends itself. So mm-hmm. we have a, a few systems that, that the body communicates with itself, but one of them is through these chemicals that pass through the blood. And so it's, yes. it's, a, it's a unique kind of mix between an active and passive communication right. system. But that's when, when you talk about pro-inflammatory mm-hmm. um, chemicals or molecules mm-hmm. that, that they're coming through the bloodstream, it's a signal to start a process of repair. Exactly. Typically at a specific site, but that yes. can get out of control. Yeah, so that would be would be local um, inflammation, what you're right. describing. But when we're talking about health concerns, we're talking about chronic systemic, right. systemic meaning whole body. Um, and a lot of disorders such as diabetes, depression, all those kinds of things, we touched on that I think in the last episode, have an inflammatory component, a mm-hmm. pro-inflammatory component. The other, the flip side of that is your anti-inflammatory cytokines, which basically, as your pro-inflammatory cytokines go up, your anti should also go up in a normal response mm-hmm. as the repair process continues and we need to kind of calm things back down. Right. Um, and when you have chronic systemic inflammation, you really want to get those anti-inflammatory compounds you know, circulating and trying mm-hmm. to calm, calm the storm, basically. Um, but in our case, we we didn't really see much change in the you know eight to twelve weeks. Um, it usually takes a little bit longer for to see any changes in, for inflammation. Um, but when we talked about oxidative stress, oxidative stress again, I'm going to get really excited Go ahead, about nerd it. Nerd out on it. Um, <laughs> so oxidative stress is basically this imbalance um, between free radicals and antioxidants. So free radicals are basically these, you know, molecules, atoms, um, if you want to get that small, that are missing electrons. They're, they're missing energy. And they, all molecules and atoms want to be complete. They want all the energy they need to feel, you know, safe and satisfied, just like we would. Um, So they'll go around and you know, and that's the basis of all chemical reactions is the swapping of energy and mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff, like swapping of the, ele- the electrons. But free radicals are missing um, these these electrons. They're missing that energy. And they will take from anybody that they see. Um, they'll take from molecules. Seems kind of rude, but it right. is. It is rude. <laughs> um, <laughs> but again, nothing to be scared of because, again, oxidative stress free radicals also signaling in the body to um, start different processes. Um, We just don't want to get it out of control as per usual. But basically what happens is they'll take electrons, energy from these, um, you know, cells that make up your eye, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, And it'll cause damage to the cell or it'll cause the cell to die. Um, And sometimes the damage can be to the DNA and that's when you can get cancers, all those kinds of things. Majority of the time, if you think of things um, like different retinopathies, a lot of the time there's a lot of oxidative stress causing just damage to the nerves Mm -hmm. um, in the eye. Um, So they're taking whatever they can get. Now, on the other hand, you have your antioxidants. And this is, you can have, there's two different classes. There's endogenous, meaning we have them already. They're Mm -hmm. in our body. We were born with them. antioxidants that are enzymes that have the ability to share their electrons really, really well mm-hmm. um, and basically neutralize them and then the free radicals move along their way. They don't need to take from your eye cell mm-hmm. anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have your 
exogenous antioxidants, meaning these are the ones you get from your food. Um, there's a lot more exogenous than there are endogenous, and that is why so many people are like, you need to eat your antioxidants, and nobody knows why they need to eat their <laughs> antioxidants. But basically, it's to neutralize those free radicals so they don't cause any damage. Mm -hmm. So in terms of pain, um, and what we saw in um, that, that study was the carbohydrates went down. So one of the primary sources of, for Westerners at least, um, of oxidative stress is excess carbohydrates. Mm -hmm. We love carbs, right. myself included, mm -hmm. but the problem is we also love simple carbs. Um, and those are very quickly processed. Um, and when you have an overabundance of them, your body's really trying to, you know, crank them out. There's naturally produced free radicals during carbohydrate metabolism. Mm. And if there's not enough antioxidants to kind of neutralize the excess, you're going to start having problems like neuropathy. It can cause inflammation. It can cause cell damage, cell death. It can cause, you know, cancers and things like that. So what we found was when they switched over to a low-carb diet, not only were they, you know, reducing the amount of refined sugar carbohydrates they were eating, but because l lower carbohydrate foods tend to be high in antioxidants, they were also getting more wow. antioxidants. So it's like a double bang for the buck. Exactly. Got it. Um, we got to love vegetables. We got to love our vegetables. <laughs> um, so what we saw basically was this drastic reduction in um, oxidative stress, and that was directly correlated with reductions in pain scores when we did things like chair stands temporal summation of mechanical pain, mm -hmm. all the things. Um, so that was really, really cool. So then I kind of started going, you know, inflammatory adjacent, but also looking at oxidative stress because mm -hmm. oxidative stress can also influence inflammation as well. Um, but yeah, so that's kind of how I got to the dissertation part. And then um, ended up going to NAPS um, North American Pain School. That's where you get to like do the whitewater rafting and yeah. all that stuff. <laughs> um, and I, need to, I need to go to that. You need to go. <laughs> you apply. need to go to that. Yeah. Um, and met Roger. Um, we'd met like prior at conferences and he episode came. one for the yes. Dr. Fillingham for yes. episode one. Uh, we'd met. He'd come. He came to UAB because he was a UAB mm -hmm. behavioral neuroscience grad. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, gave a talk. We'd met there. We met, I think it was at a, I think it was at USASP when it was APS. And then, um, but These really got societies, to societies, by the way. The, so yeah. Oh yeah. We, yeah, we get together and nerd out together and, in, in, in sometimes in small <laughs> groups and then there's an annual conference, uh, yes. where science is shared and, you know, you get opportunity to network and, and present your work and so on and so forth. So yeah. the U S association for the study of pain, uh, USASP, if you want to look mm -hmm. that up, there's some really cool stuff that comes yes. with it. Please yes. continue. Um, and, you know, then went to NAPS, got to know him a lot better there, and that was when he said, you know, if you're interested in postdocing, like, this is what's going on at UF. He got me in touch with Yenisel Cruz Almeida. I think she's episode two. <laughs> my very yeah. well. One of my favorites, for sure. Yes. Two or yeah. three, I can't remember. Yeah. Um, and now I am her, her postdoc, so I am doing... They didn't bait you with... A, they didn't say, like, we have a Canadian already here. Uh, they didn't do anything like that. They didn't do anything like that. Okay. They were just oh. like, you should come to Florida. Look at this cool science that we're doing. Right. Well, and they kind of baited me, too, with, you know, we've got nutrition data. 
Yeah. Please do something. And yeah. so I was like, ooh, okay. Um, and so now I'm looking primarily at um, vitamin D specifically mm-hmm. um, and epigenetics. Um, so for people who aren't familiar with that term, uh, it's so genetics is like the study of the your DNA code um, and you know mutations in the code and all that stuff. Epigenetics is the study of how your body uses that DNA. So how our genes are being expressed, not necessarily any changes to the <laughs> to the DNA itself, but changes to how it's being expressed. Mm-hmm. Um, and so probably within the last, I'd say, 10 to 15 years, we, we've learned that there's a vitamin D receptor that's not only present on cells, but also present as like a transcription factor. Mm. Um, and being deficient in vitamin D. We've, we've known for so long being deficient in vitamin D is bad. Like it leads to bad health outcomes. Right, right. Why that is, we haven't really known. And that vitamin D receptor has been huge. Um, so so did that, that, the vitamin D receptor and the discovery of that, did that come around the completion of the human genome? Is that when people found that? Or was it more it was recent even? More recent than that. Wow, yeah. okay. Uh, it's, just, it's come with, with technology. Yeah. Um, and then also the fact that, you know, that vitamin D receptor, in order for it to work, it has to combine forces with the retinoid receptor, which is vitamin A. Mm. They have to kind of come together. So my, my research kind of is going in the direction of how are these two vitamins regular, regulating the epigenome and how is that influencing pain? Um, because I think that's kind of an untapped reservoir. Epigenetics is a very young science yeah and so yeah. On, on that note i'm gonna i'm gonna act as a proxy a little bit for for our audience and, and simultaneously make sure i have my understanding correct mm-hmm. because i may be delving into a, a little bit of my <laughs> own foray into to epigenetics here yes. shortly um so you have you have your your dna which is mm-hmm. is basically uh it's almost like the instruction manual right exactly and based on that instruction manual, you, your body will um, you know, transcribe that to form proteins mm-hmm. and, and all kinds of things happen in, in concert with that. But the, the epigenome or epigenetics is how or why some of that doesn't get, you know, it's written, but mm-hmm. it doesn't get used. The, you know, instruction, like the page in the instruction manual gets skipped or yep. torn out or whatever. What influences that? Is it is it behavioral? Is it obviously it's not genetic because the gene itself, yeah. you know, it's there, mm-hmm. but it's not being used properly. So how what? So it is bridge that gap for me. Yeah. So it's really cool because it's kind of a little bit of anything external in your environment, mm-hmm. but also psychological, social um, components as well. So environmental in terms of like diet, exposure to air pollution. Um, all that exposure to pesticides, toxins, you know, all those things. Mm-hmm. But even things like chronic stress, um, negative childhood experiences, um, neighborhood disadvantage, low socioeconomic status is what we talked about, you know, last time. Um, those can also all influence the way your genes are expressed. And so, you know, that's probably one of the reasons why we see such poor health outcomes. Mm-hmm when you're looking just at like social environments it could work the hypothesis is that's the link between you know the social mm-hmm. and then the biological because you, you hear all the time well 
you know, you may have a genetic predisposition for, mm -hmm. right? So let me take this to the next level, and it's totally okay if you don't have an answer for this. Okay. But I want to ask a nerd question of my own. All right. More often than not, when we discuss epigenetics, mm -hmm. and it's, yeah, these, these either environmental or behavioral or psychological factors that, that prevent your body from reading its own instruction book mm -hmm. on how to be. Yep. We often think of things that make you suboptimal. Mm -hmm. Right. Because you think that your your DNA is, it, you know, it's, yeah. how you're, it's how you're supposed to be. Right. It's a combination mm -hmm. of, of both parents and it is what it is. But sometimes that instruction book results in things that are, are less advantageous, you know, yeah. male pattern baldness. Yes. I don't know why that was the first thing that came to mind. Um, Nearsightedness. Laugh it up, Eric. Yeah. <laughs> um, Eric's behind the camera laughing yes. at this, but little as you know, I'm going to sign him up for this study where he has to shave his full beard off. Okay. Um, <laughs> that study does exist. If you have a full beard and you want to shave it, you know, there's some, some literature around University of Florida. Uh, I'm sure they would love to have you participate. You so um, nearsightedness, these mm -hmm. things that, that are part of your genetic code, are there epigenetic hacks that could potentially turn a negative into a positive and I'm sorry if I'm nearsighted yep. and I also <laughs> I think that I might be thinning my hair a little bit um, I don't know so I'm with you all on that mm -hmm. out there um, I'm an ally um, <laughs> are, there, are there is there anything that you've seen so far in mm -hmm. your work that would that would allude to the fact that either dietary or behavioral adaptations could mm -hmm. maybe result in affecting the gene or your epigenetics mm -hmm. Uh, favorably. Yes. That's that the was, best part about epigenetics is it's gosh, like, darn, you can was, go, I you're like, so smart. This is the thing. I do like that. You can say, <laughs> wait, hang on. Let me give you a moment of silence. Go ahead. What were you saying? You're so smart. All right. I do like that. <laughs> but yeah, usually I kind of go for, oh man, that's a good question. Mm -hmm. And if I can get really smart people on my podcast yep. and have them say, oh, that's a good question, yep. then that makes me feel there validated. Well, so thank you for that. Good question okay. for sure, because that's the best part about epigenetics is what can be, you know, change to be negative can also be changed to be positive. Um, so all of those factors, if you optimize them, like you're eating well, you're exercising, you're sleeping well, you try and keep a low stress, pro that's hard to do. Um, but try and, you know, practice stress management, all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, you can change your epigenome to be more favorable. And to kind of go back to your predisposition, well, there's a lot of people that are like, oh, not oh, my predisposition. Well, I'm just saying. You, know, you mentioned like, you know have a yeah. biological predisposition <laughs> for X, Y, Z. Right, right. But there's so many people who are like, well, you know, my mom had diabetes, my grandma had diabetes. I'm just gonna get diabetes. I've got a genetic predisposition. Right. I'm not for laughing this. at diabetes. Sorry. No. I, I want I want to be perfectly clear. We have a lighthearted podcast yes. here. <laughs> not making light of diabetes. Um, <laughs> diabetes. We're in the south, so yeah. you know. Um, but just because you might have that, that you know, genetic predisposition mm -hmm. doesn't necessarily mean that gene has to be turned on. Brilliant. Um, so you can eat right, exercise, do all these things, and you can not get diabetes. Hmm. Just because your family had it doesn't mm -hmm. mean you have to, right, to, right. to have it and experience it. So all of those same factors... Um, you know, some of them are a little bit harder to change um, than others. But if you can try your best to, to, you know, take care of yourself as much as you can by eating right, sleeping right, exercising, all of those things, um, you can 
have a favorable epigenome. So you are the diet expert, and I promised our mm -hmm. listeners and viewers that we would get a little bit into playing upon that expertise mm -hmm. to discuss some things that, that they could immediately do, mm -hmm. exactly like we're talking about that. Actually, yep. I couldn't have written that up better Perfect myself. Segue. I don't, I swear, I don't have a script <laughs> for this, but, you know, the, my expertise is, you know, I just yeah. navigate the ship through this. Mm -hmm. We got right to where I was hoping to go to fulfill my word. What are some of these foods that stand out the most that you've seen? And if you want to just keep it specific to pain, that's fine. But I know that that your uh, that your education, your expertise in diet expands beyond pain. Mm -hmm. So feel free to bloviate on any of it. Sure. Um, I'm sure people would love to know. Most certainly, you'll you'll have some recommendations that they've heard ad nauseum, and right. maybe this will be the time that they say, "Oh, mm. you know what." You're right. I should eat more leafy greens. Yeah. Well, so please. Yeah. And so um, I often give um, talks with a, a church back in Birmingham, and I think they're tired of me saying you need to eat the rainbow mm. because I always come on. I'm like, it's nutrition and cancer or nutrition and pain, nutrition and this, blah, blah, blah. And I'm always like, eat the rainbow. And Lucky so, charms. Yeah. Lucky charms mm. is the key? Not the key. Uh, I wish. I wish I could say yes. Okay. Um, so, but, okay. So the rainbow. The rainbow. So if you can try and get as many colors on your plate as you can, I almost mm -hmm. think of it as like a challenge of like, can I get Roy G. Biv, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet on my plate um, or as close to it as I can per meal, then I know I'm doing okay mm -hmm. um, without having to, you know, calculate math and you know do all those things because some people don't want to weigh their food they don't want to right and that can lead to you know disordered eating and all that mm -hmm. stuff and that's a whole other Greta's up Greta. my buddy's up um but so without having to like stress about your food that's the easiest way to do it is to just try and get as many colors as you can on your plate and if you're colorblind get a friend to help you but <laughs> I have a I have a a, a, a kind of a, a favorite pastime of cooking you know okay me too no training whatsoever me but i will say right? <laughs> I've, I've got a lot of practice at eating me but too. um the the thing i've noticed also though and maybe this is just me but when not even going out of my way to do that for saying oh like yeah i have some i have some reds here i have some mm -hmm. you know whatever the food that i prepare being more aesthetically pleasing Tends to make Feel. me appreciate it more and like it. That is a whole I thing. Convince myself that it's tasty, and it. it, it I mean, it's usually a whole is. Don't get me wrong. Psychological thing that they've studied. Really? Yeah. But, but I, I will say this though. If if I do that, you know, so if I do have a starch, then I try to, you know, like so we'll get some fiber and dice up red and green bell peppers to go in the mm -hmm. rice or something like that. Um, you know, and if I've if I've got that and there's nothing that's that's yellow on the plate, then what can, can I make some squash? Mm -hmm. so there is something to that 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 it's fun. they go hand in hand, like the the aesthetic nature and then yeah. also the taste and the yeah. yeah so you'll be more interested in eating it if it looks aesthetically pleasing and if you try and like get all of the colors on your plate you will often times not repeat the same recipe over and over again i'm not sure i've ever made the same thing um, twice. especially that chili that i made for you eric <laughs> nice. i don't know if you've tried it yet I've, it's all one color but it's so good I please know, go ahead but it's got a lot of red which is good yeah um but but so, yeah, so that's one thing that you can do is, you know, eat the rainbow. Try and get as many colors on your plate at once. Um, white is okay, too. Cauliflower is white. Um, believe it or not, regular potatoes are okay. There's like a whole <laughs> diet based on potatoes. Yeah. Like potatoes as a starch are not as, is, is, 
villainous as people no. make out to be, right? No. Okay, I'm... hang on. We need all right. <laughs> Before you even answer that, I need to I need to run this by you. Have you heard about this this potato diet that originated? I want to say like in the 30s or something like that. Yeah. Where the this is where your biochem uh-huh. maybe comes mm-hmm. in. I don't know. Um, the composition of the starch changes the more times you cook the potato, mm-hmm. right? Yes. And it becomes what less less digestible or less easily digested, so mm-hmm. it's a lower glycemic index or something. Mm-hmm. Am I getting this right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because I would love to eat potatoes all the time, so I, know. Like, I just need to know how to do that. And then the other thing is, is eat the skin. Oh so yeah. The, yeah. So and when you're washing it, it seems gross, but dirt is okay, guys. Um, but don't. See, she's from the north. Don't scrub. Hardy everything off the skin because the minerals that the plants absorb come from the dirt Mm -hmm. they're in the dirt Mm -hmm. and so if you scrub well one you peel the skin off two you scrub and you know an inch of its life a lot of it's gone um and you're just kind of left with the the carbs part of it um, not, not not terrible. That. Again, not, not terrible. something to be scared yeah. of. Like, but less complete, right? Yeah, it's just yeah. less complete. You're gonna miss out on all those really, really great, you know, minerals. Um, and yeah, so that leads me to my next point of eating more complex carbohydrates. And what I mean by that is more of the whole carbohydrate and more fiber. Okay, so, so what's an example? You've already said simple um, simple sugars or simple carbohydrates is, is like a, a sugar additive or something yes, like that, yeah. right? What's a complex carbohydrate? Complex carbohydrate is, so the best example I can think of is rice because we both know that there's brown rice and there's white rice. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the times when we look at our carbohydrates, wheat, popcorn, all those things, they have a, that's my favorite yeah, carbohydrate. Yeah. Um, it's my, also my favorite whole grain. It is a whole grain. <laughs> you learn something new every day. That's, yeah, I just did. Amen for popcorn. Anyway, so um, a complex carbohydrate will have the entire uh, makeup of whatever whatever carbohydrate um, it is. So, for example, for rice, it's going to have um, the outer kind of shell mm-hmm. of it, mm-hmm. and then it's going to have the inner. The outer shell is where a lot of the fiber resides. It makes it harder to process. Mm-hmm. Um, so it a lot of the times when you know companies want to do things in mass production, they'll often strip the shell mm-hmm. off so that you have white rice. Um, it's a lot easier to process. That's um, the difference between brown rice and white rice. Is is the white rice is the shell. Yeah, mm. uh, yeah. White rice is just the inside of it. Okay. Missing the shell. Because I prefer white rice. I think it tastes better, but. Well, it's if probably can, the, it's got I, a different taste yeah. because of the shell. If I yeah. can convince myself, however, that when I'm eating brown rice, I'm actually also eating white rice because it's in there somewhere. It is in there maybe somewhere. I'll be more likely to eat brown <laughs> rice. Okay. Um, but what happens, uh, the difference between when you're eating like a complex carb versus a simple carb mm-hmm. um, is when your body digests it, it's going to break it down into the simplest sugar we can, which is glucose. Um, and... That is going to be absorbed, put into your bloodstream, and, you know, the rest is history. When it is a simple carb, it's really easy to break down and really easy to absorb, and it will cause your blood sugar to spike. Mm-hmm. That will cause a lot of insulin to rush out, um, be secreted from your pancreas, because we have to, you know, pull the sugar from your bloodstream, and mm-hmm. there's a lot of sugar there. When you have a complex carb, there's fiber present. There's a lot of fiber present. Our bodies were not made to digest fiber. We don't actually really use it for energy. 
So what happens is it kind of literally physically gets in the way of the absorption process. So it slows the absorption process down. You'll get more of a steady blood sugar release. Mm -hmm. um, so you're going to feel you're not going to have a spike in a crash. Um, this is especially important if you have diabetes um, because you don't want those blood sugar spikes. And even if you don't have diabetes, constant blood sugar spikes can lead to type 2 diabetes. Um, that's an aside. Um, but it's going to slow the absorption process down. Um, it's also going to, you know, make sure it collects waste products on its way out um, so that we can, you know, get rid of the toxins that don't belong. Mm -hmm. um, and excrete them but the main the biggest thing is in terms of like carbohydrates and you know is that absorption mm -hmm. um slowing that absorption down so are there studies that that associate a higher fiber diet with lower chronic systemic inflammation then mm -hmm. okay. yeah so that's where the glycemic index comes from so typically simple sugars are going to have you know that high glycemic index because it's going to shoot your your, mm -hmm. your 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 blood sugar up and then foods that are higher in fiber are going to be on the other end of that list. Um, so you want to try and keep lots of fiber. And that comes from, you know, keeping the skin on your apples. Mm -hmm. um, you don't have to necessarily eat your orange peels, but when you're buying orange juice, you know, this isn't everybody's cup of tea, but, you know, pulp is, is nice. <laughs> so good. I like it too. Something just occurred to me, though, the inconsistencies <laughs> in human behavior, right? Because if I caught somebody peeling an apple, I'd be like, there's something wrong with you. I know. But also if I witnessed somebody eating the skin of an orange, I'd be like, there's something Whoa, wrong with you what too. What are you doing? So, yeah. Yeah. So, um, lots of fiber. Um, that's going to help with, you know, digestion. And it's also going to feed um, your gut microbiome, which we're also learning is got things to do with pain yeah, as well yeah, because yeah. it is kind of your frontline immune system um there is a brain gut connection mm -hmm. immune gut connection which is really cool that would be another great podcast we could go on forever about um but it's going to promote healthy gut microbiota your buddies in your in your belly right. um and they're going to help digest your food better <laughs> um so there's that um protein is really good um obviously not in too high of an amount because um, too much protein is also linked with um, kidney failure. So mm -hmm. that's why a lot of bodybuilders often will have kidney issues. Now, I've, I've seen some research to, yeah. to push back on that a little yeah. bit. Um, not that I'm a bodybuilder, or, but I do like <laughs> a, a relatively high protein diet. But, um, but I've seen some research lately that for healthy kidneys, if your kidneys are yes. already healthy, yeah. then higher protein intake is fine. However, yes. Uh, there are some populations that that may uh, partake in other behavioral activities yes. that compromise healthy kidney function, and mm -hmm. then the effect of protein really uh, yeah. is deleterious. Yeah, and when I when I mean high protein, I mean like high protein, like you're living off of Chili. chicken and oh, <laughs> sorry, sorry. <laughs> there's carbs in there, <laughs> but like you're really not eating anything right. else. And there right. are people that you know they're living off of protein that can be really hard yeah. Yeah. Um, on your kidneys. Um, especially, um, and it's causing some people to have kidney problems young. Mm -hmm. Um, and a lot of people don't know that they have kidney issues, um, right. because they don't go to their annual physical. This is a plug to go see your doctor for your annual physical, get your blood work done. Um, well, and I should point out that a lot of, uh, you know, chronic kidney disease, uh, is, is irreversible. Yeah. You know, you can maybe stop it in its tracks by changing your behavior, changing your diet. But um, once you've done some damage it's to those little guys, they uh, they kind of tend you to can't stay really, that way. Can't really go backwards. Right. Um, yeah. But yeah, so 
you know, complex carbs. Carbs are nothing to be scared of. The media makes it out to be a scary thing. And then the other one is fats um, that apparently everybody is scared of. They're nothing to be afraid of. You just want to eat the right kind. Is the right kind of fat butter on your popcorn? I wish. (laughs) In moderation, yes. Well, you just fell out of the contention for favorite episode ever. I am. I'll excuse myself now. (laughs) Um, In moderation... Let's, I'll, I'll asterisk that in moderation, butter on your popcorn. Um, but you want to stick with the healthy fats, which on your food label are going to be um, your unsaturated fats. So um, those are called your monounsaturated poly. They sometimes are broken down on the food label. Off, If it's unsaturated, it's usually pretty good. So that will include things like your omega-3s and your... Um, yeah, so mega so three is the big one. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that I'm pretty sure that everybody's heard of of saturated versus, you know, mm-hmm. unsaturated fats. What's the difference between the two? So the difference again, biochem nerd Please, coming out. That's why I asked. And we'll also talk, also throw in trans fats, even though we don't have to worry about them as much now. Um, so saturated versus unsaturated is basically just talking about their chemical structure. So. If you're looking at it under a you know electron microscope, um, you basically have when you're looking at a fat, you have this carbon chain. So all these carbons holding hands, and then you have, um, so carbons basically will have four hands to hold. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, two of them will be holding other carbons, and then the other two will be holding hydrogen molecules. Um, and what happens is sometimes um, when you're talking about like a saturated fat, they're all just holding one carbon's hand, holding the other one on the other side. Sometimes, when you're talking about unsaturated, they'll hold the same carbon with two hands, and you'll have a double bond, Mm. is what we call it, a double bond between two carbons. Mm -hmm. And what happens when you have a double bond is it puts a kink in the chain, um, just based off of the way electromagnetic fields work. It'll put a kink, and it'll look a little bit janky. Um, And so... Highly scientific term. Yeah, very scientific. It's janky. Mm -hmm. Um, So saturated fats are straight because they're all just in line holding each other's hands. Unsaturated are kind of crooked. And when you look at it in terms of disease progression, um, especially in cardiovascular disease, um, what happens is the saturated fats tend to stack really easily on top of each other. Mm -hmm. um, And that can start to cause problems like plaque buildup and all that everything and that can actually Clogged arteries. Yeah, yeah um and it can it can start to you know lead to those kinds of things whereas unhealthy or unsaturated um they have trouble stacking because mm-hmm. they're kinked all kinked up mm-hmm. um the other thing is is based on their you know chemical properties and how they interact with other um molecules in our body um especially our cholesterol we have our good and our bad cholesterol saturated fat tends to interact more with our bad cholesterol and drive it up. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're actually, we're actually learning that the cho- dietary cholesterol doesn't have as big of an impact on the cholesterol number you see on your lab work mm-hmm. compared to saturated wow. fat, which is interesting. So eggs are not scary, everybody. Right. Um, that you know what a lot of people a lot of people get hung up on that though, yeah. and mm-hmm. and I understand how mm-hmm. it can be confusing because yeah. as we learn more. Mm-hmm. Our informed opinion, uh, what we infer from the science, changes. That doesn't mean that, oh, well, you know, this is this is right or wrong or that's right or wrong. Obviously, mm-hmm. there is our current understanding. Right. 
But the egg, people always come back oh, to the egg. Oh, it's the egg. Because there was a time where it's like, oh, you know, eggs, eggs are great. You know, they're fantastic. We, we grew eggs on, well, we didn't grow eggs, but we had eggs on our farm. And, mm-hmm. you know, the chickens grew the eggs and then we took them from them, yada, yep. yada. But then it's like, oh, the, the yolks are horrible, right? So you can eat eggs, but only eat the whites. Yeah. And and now, you know, we're realizing. But but the point is, is that opinion has changed. Right. Not because nobody knows what they're talking about. It's because we're continually learning more. And people like Dr. Strath are out there, mm-hmm. you know, experimenting and, and learning more about diet and, and how the body uh, uses diet and different, uh, you know, I mm-hmm. guess, effects that diet has on the body. And as we learn more, we learn that you know maybe we were wrong before mm-hmm. yeah. it's one of those cases yeah and, and also eggs are good oh yeah one well, my my humble opinion about eggs is that yolk has enough nutrients in it to grow another organism right, right. like that is the when it, an egg is fertilized and the mom's sitting on it it's getting all its nutrients from the yolk and by right. the time it hatches the the whites are still kind of there um but the yolk is what grew that that little baby chick and I'm like that's got enough nutrients yeah. to produce life then like I'm gonna eat it I should have three <laughs> of those in the morning yeah well actually right? that is the rec- like you can safe they safely mm-hmm. um, they recommend if you want to eat eggs you know three a day is fine um, and you shouldn't see much change I haven't too. I haven't seen any I haven't grown feathers yet or yeah, anything so I'm also feeling pretty good exactly um, yeah. but yeah so they eggs are great um, they they're a great source of protein. They have a lot of those good fats in there. They've got a lot of vitamins and minerals in there. Like I said, because it can grow a whole being. Yeah, yeah. Um, so eggs eggs are fine. And then that kind of, you know, that healthy, unhealthy fat kind of brings you to what your cooking oils you're, you're choosing to cook with. Mm-hmm. So things like... Uh, lard and butter, those are going to be higher in saturated fats. So remember, we are talking about the ability to stack. Right, the stackable ones. So the stackable Stack. ones are going to be more solid at room temperature because they are, have are the ability to stack. The unsaturated are going to be more liquid at room temperature. So those are your olive oils, your avocado oils, your vegetable oils, all those kinds of things. So when you're making those decisions, you know, to cook with things, you know, every now and again, I cook my eggs in butter because it tastes good. Sure <laughs> Sometimes does. you just have to, you know, feed your soul. Irish butter. Exactly. It's my plug for Irish butter. Um, but should I be doing that with everything and cooking with 12 sticks of butter all the time? No. Right. I should probably swap it out with something. Keep it un- to six. Six sticks six, of butter. Yeah, not seven. No. Um, six is the max. But, yeah, so... Seven if you have popcorn. Exactly. Seven for popcorn. Just <laughs> Not really. douse it. And, anyway. Um, but, yeah, so those cooking Did oils are that? important. You'll need to turn off airplane mode. <laughs> hey, We're going to cut that out in production. <laughs> you won't hear any of that. <laughs> um, and then uh, when, you're, when you are cooking with those oils, making sure you pay attention to uh, their smoke point so that you don't burn it. Mm. One, it tastes bad. It gets really bitter. The oils will get bitter in your See, food. See, I'm learning bad. something right now. Okay. Two, what's going to happen, going back to our oxidative stress, is heat is going to basically promote the fat molecules to start to disintegrate a little bit, not in a great way. 
um, and they're going to break apart and produce free radicals. Mm. And then you'll be consuming more free radicals that way. So keeping your cooking oils below their smoke point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so you don't – sometimes, like, if you're cooking steak and all those things, you kind of want it to smoke a little bit. Mm. That's mm -hmm. for flavor. But, again, moderation. Don't mm, do it. This steak tastes like free radicals. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, unfortunately, to burst everyone's bubble, anything burnt has free radicals in it. But, again, moderation is key. Our body was designed for moderation. It's right. designed to – you know, we're highly adaptive organisms. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Gotcha. It, it's got mechanisms in place. So if you want to have like a really well done steak, you're probably going to be okay. I don't know if I my like opinion of you will be okay because I am a <laughs> no. medium rare kind of girl. But <laughs> so, hardy people, I told hardy you. people. Um, but yeah, so anything that's burnt, smoking, will have the presence of free radicals. Okay, I am going to make because we we are short on time. I'm mm -hmm. going to make. One of my least graceful pivots ever. All because right. <laughs> speaking of cooking, here it is. Oh, oh, In three, two, one. Speaking of cooking, <laughs> you're involved <laughs> with a program that I actually I wanted to expose more people to, and yeah. I'm sure that you did as well. Yeah. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about Cooking Well? Yes. So Cooking Well um, is a nonprofit. It's based in Birmingham, um, and it was founded by... Judy Van, she's my Southern Fairy Godmother, as I call her, um, and I met her while I was at UAB, um, and we've kind of just combined forces because she is very talented in the field of gathering people and getting people around the table, and you know, she calls herself a. I like people like that. Yeah, she yeah. calls herself a glorified party planner, but she's way more than that. <laughs> Love you, Judy. Um, and then what I bring to the table is like the education piece, so. What we do, the whole point is to, one, build community within the city of Birmingham, and then, uh, two, is to provide free nutrition and culinary education. So it doesn't matter where you're from, how much money you make, all those kinds of things, because a lot of cooking and nutrition classes are so expensive. Yeah. So we yeah. found a kind of cooking well equivalent-ish. We think we're better, but we're biased. Um, <laughs> and it was about $600 a head. Oh, um, and so you're providing the same service for free. for free. How would people get in? How would people get at this information? Uh, so our main platform is Instagram. So it's at cooking dot well. Um, I'm glad you're doing that with your hand because I'm yeah. going to have Kat put that in post production right under your hand. Yes, at so. cooking dot well, <laughs> um, <laughs> and we post all kinds of like, you know, as much as you can on Instagram, just nutrition facts, hacks, cooking tips, recipes, all those things. But in the bio of the Instagram is a fillable form um, because, and if you ever want to sign up for classes, you can through that form. And then the next time the, the class will start because we do classes both in person and online. Really? So we do it on Zoom. So COVID actually really kicked that off. We were all primarily in person. Um, so now you don't have to be in Birmingham to, no. to get in. Are and the classes I, also free? The classes are free. They are all free. And so what we do is we've broken it up into, right now we have three courses that you take. So there's Cooking Well 1, which is like your basics. So we do, you know, how to read a food label, serving sizes, because a lot of people think they know how to read a food label and they don't. Mm -hmm. um, and that's really important to make informed decisions. A lot of people don't think they know what a serving size is. <laughs> We're not very good at that in <laughs> We won't talk about that. It's depressing. Um <laughs> But then, so we do that, uh, we talk about, you know, what are carbs, first of all, why should we not be scared of them, what do they do 
for our body. Mm -hmm. What happens um, if we, you know, eat too much and too little of them? We do the same thing for fats, proteins, and then vitamins, minerals, antioxidants. That's the first class. It's a, and then it's paired with culinary modules. So we basically flip-flop every week. So the first week, you know, for example, we talk about vitamins and minerals. Mm -hmm. The culinary piece the next week is going to be a meal high in vitamins and minerals and also cooking techniques that don't kill off all of the vitamins and minerals that are in the food because vitamins are light, heat, acid sensitive. Um, so if you're, you know, cooking it for eight hours a day, yes, it's a pepper. Does Was it have the same vitamin C <laughs> content? Probably not. Um, so talking about things like that. and What if you cook it low, like chili? <laughs> this is where you say that's a good question. That's a good question. Thanks. Josh. All right, go ahead. Please continue. Um, yeah, that we'd have to we'd have to work on that. Tomatoes tend to be a little hardier. Mm -hmm. They're hardy. Mm -hmm. They're hardy people like us. Um, Especially northern tomatoes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, exactly. Those <laughs> northern tomatoes. Um, but you know, talking about cooking techniques that will optimize the vitamin mineral mm -hmm. content, and then the same thing goes. You know, next week we learn about carbs. We're gonna talk. We're gonna you know do. Maybe a carbohydrate alternative. So we do typically like a spaghetti squash. So trying to expose people to things too that maybe they wouldn't have thought of or saw in the grocery store and they went, I don't know what this is, so I'm not going to cook with it. Mm -hmm. um, and that's kind of where cooking well began because so Judy used to work for kind of like an inner city um, mission uh, company within Birmingham. Mm -hmm. And she would follow kind of the benevolent food distribution around um, because Publix in Birmingham is great. Like they will donate so many fresh fruits and vegetables. And so she followed the, the delivery and she just watched people throw so much food away mm. because they just don't know what to do with it. And that's not their fault. They've just never been exposed to it. Right. Like if you don't know what an avocado is, how do I expect you to know what guacamole is? You know, right. that kind of thing. Um, so Exposing people to food um, that they otherwise wouldn't have, have known. Um, doing it on a budget is a big one. Mm -hmm. um, and then also promoting being around a table together because there's just so much good psychology <laughs> that is yeah. uh, there. And um, About sharing meals with sharing other Sharing meals people. with other yeah. people. It yeah. is probably one of the most important things you can do, especially with your kids um, and just people in general because – especially with cooking well because it's free and anybody can come. We get a lot of people from various backgrounds who wouldn't necessarily run into each other mm -hmm. um, on the street. And if they did, they probably would just go, oh, hey, and they, they wouldn't actually get to know right. each get other. Get to interact, yeah. And so a lot of the time you have people that are come from complete opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of, like, class, um, just socioeconomic stuff, all those things that are finally finding common ground and can finally – be like, oh, I see your point of view because we've had this shared experience over a shared thing that we do, which is eat and like to eat food. So there's that component is huge as well. And then, you know, the second and third courses kind of build on that knowledge of what the carbohydrates, fats, proteins, all those things are and why they could lead into diseases. So what we do in the second one is we kind of start diving into things like eating for inflammation. What is inflammation? Mm -hmm. How do I manipulate it with my diet? 
diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and then we do um, weight management. So we talk about not just losing weight because I think, you know, that's a very sensitive area for a lot of people. Sure. So we try to be very careful with that. But we also talk about something that doesn't really get talked about, which is under eating Mm. and uh, the disadvantages to your health that that can have. So eating enough and trying to not, you know, another scary word for a lot of people is calories. Explaining that calories are just energy units. (laughs) In chemistry, you, when you have a chemical reaction in a test tube, you write it down in calories. That's Mm -hmm. the unit. And it's not even food. So, (laughs) so again, not a scary word. Um, So we talk about disease and then cooking well three is our newest one um, because we finished cooking well too, and people are like, well, what, can we do more? I have more questions. So we talked about autoimmune disorders, uh, mental health, uh, chronic pain, and the gut microbiome in cooking well three, and we're starting the development of cooking well four. That's exciting. When do you yeah. think that'll be released? Uh, probably in the new year. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah. So I'm working with uh, dietetic intern right now. So that's the other thing we partner with UAB in Samford, um, and they do the dietetic interns. They have to do so many hours um, in order to get their license Mm -hmm. and they have to be in various settings and so we provide them with the community nutrition setting and we're their preceptors for their hours so we get a lot of dietetic interns coming through it's great for me (laughs) but for them too it sounds like phenomenal experience yeah (laughs) Yeah, and it's 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 a lot of fun Um, they get I mean right now we're you know experiencing what it's like to work with the community it can be great but sometimes it can be like pulling teeth of like, okay, do you want to start now? Um, we all have a dietetic intern here for a month and she'd like to get some experience like, <laughs> at some point. So it's, it's a challenge sometimes, but it's the most rewarding thing possible because we've had so many cool success stories. Mm-hmm. My favorite two really quickly being one lady who said she would never eat a vegetable in her life. She's like, you are not going to be able to make me eat a vegetable. And we were like, all right, but um, she ended up going to culinary school and oh, wow. now runs her own catering business. Wow. <laughs> Cause she's like, I hate cooking. I hate eating. And now she runs her own catering That's business. So, so that cool. was so cool. And then um, there was, an, there's my favorite story and I'll won't say her name to protect her in an anonymity. Hmm. Is that the right Anonymity. Yes. Anonym- yes. I said it right. Um, but she'll know who she is when uh, we, she hears this um but she started cooking well and it was our first like online virtual one mm-hmm. and we came and did the icebreaker like oh what's your favorite food what's your least favorite food what do you expect to get out of this class and she said i hate salad you i will not eat salad i hate it so much and judy and i are sitting there like okay we have salad on the menu for the next three weeks <laughs> like as an as a side dish uh this is going to be interesting for her um and then to get out of this class so she had just been diagnosed with type 2 diabetes mm-hmm. she has a really long history of cardiovascular disease in her family um and she wanted to lose some weight and get her cholesterol down uh and so those were her goals um that she had so she really dug into this into the curriculum mm-hmm. um the first week we made salad we all looked kind of looked at her on the screen we're all kind of and she went this is actually really good because we used arugula as the base and so it's kind of got a little peppery Mm -hmm, taste mm -hmm. and then we did like a homemade lemon vinaigrette kind of a deal she's like this is actually i don't mind this and so she trusted us with salads from then on but anyway so she did cooking well one cooking well two and she said i've I've lost a lot of weight um 
you know, I haven't had my labs done yet for the year, um, but I really want to do more. Like, I feel like I'm, you know, progressing. And so I said, well, my mom and I work out on Zoom at 7.30 in the morning Mm -hmm. every day, five days a week. Um, You're more than welcome to join us on Zoom. Well, let me tell you, she has been the accountability sheriff. Like, she is on it. So every day, like, my mom and I will be like, I don't know if I want to do it. She's there. <laughs> she oh, wants to do it. Oh, that's so cool. What a turnaround. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. long story short is she got her labs redone. She's in remission from type 2 diabetes. She's no longer classified as diabetic. That's um, amazing. Her cholesterol is normal. Um, and she's lost probably close to 50 pounds. Wow. Yeah. From just diet exercise. And Imagine so, that. I know. Right? right? Um, we would have no First idea time about I'm ever that. that. Yeah. Um, but... You know, it, and again, that's one of those things, too, that kind of speaks to the relationship aspect of cooking mm-hmm. well, which is really, really cool. So if anybody's interested, there is a Google form in the bio of the Instagram, again, at cooking.well. You have to go the other way. Oh, yeah, at cooking.well <laughs> um, uh, on Instagram. We're working on a website, but again, it's a team of two right now <laughs> um, as a nonprofit. So it's, it's coming, yeah. but we're primarily active on on Instagram. Um, so if you anyone wants to take classes, we'll get in touch with you and let you know when the next ones are starting. It's all free because that alone should draw yeah, some interest. Yeah, it's all free because I personally believe that this. I mean, we all eat. This is all things that we do. Mm-hmm. You should know how to do it. Right. Yeah. So that's I think that's a. Well. I hate to say it, but we've run over on time. Oh, so I no! think that's a fantastic part to end on. <laughs> yeah. Um, Normally, after somebody has come on for one episode, I determine whether it would be worthwhile to have them back. Now, yes. you did two episodes. I made it. No, you've already, yeah, you've already done that. So uh-huh. um, that counted as your one episode. Yep. I will say this, though. Thank you so much for coming mm-hmm. on. And I think you've made the list for when I circle back and re-invite people to come back. I feel like there's still plenty we could talk about. Oh, yeah. We've, we've got lists to talk about. That's still. true. That's true. <laughs> All right. So, But in the meantime... Dr. Strath, thank you so much for coming on. And I think that uh, particularly ending on that note with cooking well, there's plenty of of information that people Mm -hmm. can take home and apply and and get healthier. Yeah, and thank you for having me. I love chatting with you, you know. Likewise. Both both recorded and not recorded. So (laughs) anytime, anytime. We'll do it again. Thank you for joining this episode of The Price of Pain. Opinions expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and guests and not representative of the University of Florida or parent institutions of our guests, unless specifically stated. You can find more information about Price on the World Wide Web at price.ctsi.ufl.edu. And keep up with our researchers on social media by searching Facebook for UF Price by following at UF underscore pain on Twitter and Price of Pain podcast, all one word on Instagram.